0: So, as you, um, you may have guessed, uh, not a British accent, it's Australian. And, uh, yeah, but been in England now for 23 years. I've had two Yorkshire babies, and this is now my adopted home. Um, I became a British citizen uh, about a few years ago, actually. After being in England for, or in Britain, for, rather, for 19 years, I thought it's about time I became a British citizen. So I didn't want to rush it because you can't rush these things. It took a long time to kind of come to uh, that decision. I mean, for goodness sake, they wanted me to have an exam. I'm like, what? I had to read a book. I bet I know more about the British culture than you guys do. I had to learn about sculptures and buildings and TV shows. It's just, anyway, I did it. I did it. My husband turned to me as soon as I became a British citizen and said, Soph, your IQ just went up. <laughs> so after he regained consciousness, we had a little bit of conversation. I feel we've worked it through to a good place. I've got two children. I, I actually share them with my husband. And uh, 18-year-old Georgia and um, 15-year-old Jaden, And uh, they were born on the same day, three years apart. Yep, 22nd of August was the day. My husband says it's because we're disciplined in our house. <laughs> um, but um, I'm not so sure. So we're pastoring um, a great church in Manchester called Audacious Church. It's, we're 11 years old. We feel like, you know, we've got our big boy pants on now. Uh, that's You can't say that, can you? Trousers. Big boy trousers on. And... Um, <laughs> Every now and then, an Australianism will come out, and I do apologise. <laughs> and um, yeah, so we're about to launch into building what we are calling a modern day cathedral in the city centre of Manchester. There hasn't been a cathedral built in Manchester for 150 years. It's going to cost us 40 million pounds. I know. So um, if anybody's got a loose change that they can um, throw my way, that would, be, that would be really helpful. It's going to be a God story from start to finish. It already has been, but um, we're excited about everything that, that God has for us in the future. I want to ask you a question. Who truly believes in their heart of hearts that they have the best pastors in the whole wide world? Because I want you to know that you're in a great church. These churches don't just happen. That God anoints a man and a woman to to lead a church, to give them vision and to give them the faith to achieve that vision. And so we need to be totally embracing the magnitude of what God is doing in this place. This is a move of God. You have doubled in size in the last three years. How many of you know that that is supernatural? So I want you to give a massive round of applause for your pastors. We honor you pastor, we honor you. So good, so good. And uh, we're going to now have a little bit of a different message. It's going to be interactive. And what I truly believe that preaching is not a monologue. It's a dialogue between myself and you. So what we do is there is power, church, when we agree, when we agree vocally, when we agree physically with the Word of God, because I'm going to be declaring the truth of God's Word. And if you think that is for me, or that is the truth, or you couldn't have said it better, Pastor Soph, then I want you to say, Amen. So why don't you try that? Amen. Or preach it, preach it, sister. Yes. You can do that. Ready? One, two, three. Preach it, sister. And if you don't agree with me, then just say, help it, Jesus. <laughs> and um, he will. He's good like that. So what we're going to be doing a little bit more interactive because I'm going to transport you out of Cranbridge. Is that okay? I've got a little time machine, but I need you to stand up with me. And we're going to step into another time and in another place. And what I want you to imagine right now is that we are in the Middle East. And we are specifically on the banks of the Jordan River. We're stood with all of our family, our extended family, our tribe and our nation And we've got on our backs, we've got the wilderness, which we've been roaming around for 40 40 odd years. And in front of us, we've got the promised land. Now this is the land that has been promised to our forefathers. And we've heard the stories, even when we were in Egypt, even when we were slaves and we were being, you know, abused and oppressed by the Egyptians. We would talk about the promise we would learn about the promise. We would think about this God who had promised us a land flowing with milk and honey. And God miraculously took us out of, the, out of that oppression. He miraculously took us out of slavery and he, he walked with us in the wilderness. He showed us who He was. He showed us that we were not slaves, that we were actually His sons and His daughters and that we were His people. He showed us that He was our Father and that we are His children. But now, we are on the banks of the Jordan River and we are waiting. See, there it is. We are waiting for instruction. and This is what the Bible says. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from a very unfortunate name of a place but it means the gro- oh it's, it's up there right I don't know pastor if I can say that shit him and then went to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over after three days the officers went throughout the camp giving orders to the people When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Can you imagine what it's like? Can you picture yourself there? Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the Ark. Do not go near it. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves for for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Joshua said to the priest, take up the ark of the covenant and pass on ahead of the people so that they took it up and went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all of Israel so that they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Joshua said to the Israelites, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that He will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Gergesites, the Amorites and the Jebusites. See, the, ark of the, Lord of the co- ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Father, we just thank you for these m- minutes, these moments, Lord God. I pray that our, the eyes of our hearts will be open, that we will see where we are, that we will see where you are and what we need to do in Jesus' name. Everybody say, Amen. Amen. You can take your seats now back in Cambridge, I believe that we're, we're in a new era of the church. And the era is a is, is bit of a strong word, but I want to kind of make a, a distinction between the word era and the word season. The see, seasons is what we, we are familiar with in, the, in our language of church life, because we know that just as in the natural, so in the spiritual. So, in the natural, we have seasons. Every single one has its own function, it has its own purpose. But the thing about seasons is that it's cyclical. So, we have experienced many winters, we've experienced many springs, and we've experienced many summers and autumns. So, we know what to expect when the seasons come around. We know that we are now in spring and we know what's coming. We know what's going to happen to the trees. We know what's going to happen to the temperature. We know that we're going to be able to adjust the way we live. But it, we, it is something that we have done before and we will do it again. The thing about an error is that something has happened that has actually changed the way we live forever. Yeah. That we cannot go back to the way we were living before. Now imagine for a moment... That the the car was never invented. If the car had never been invented, chances are we would have rocked up to church on a horse. And think about the people who are currently on our car park team, but now are trying to manage all these horses. Coming into church. We would be looking for land for stables. But no, we have had the introduction of the automobile. And our lives have never been the same. It changed the way we lived. It changed the way we do life. The same can be said for the internet. With the introduction of the internet, it changed the way we live. Television changed the way we lived. I remember there's a quote, you know, floating around somewhere that somebody said about the invention of the television, it will never catch on. We'll get bored and we will move on. But no, it changed the way we live. It, it's, it's changing. The internet's changing the way we shop. It's changing the way we do relationships. It's changing the way we do banking. It's changing the way we do business. It's changing everything. We will never be this. I mean, life, the way we knew it before is over. The life that my kids are living is different to the life that I lived when I was their age. That is the power of a new era. And I believe that as a church, as the church, we are entering into a new era of what church looks like. The thing is, when you go somewhere that you've never been before, what you tend to do is you look for a local. You look for somebody who lives there or knows the area well. And, you know, we all go on TripAdvisor when we're going on holiday. I know I do. If it's got a two-star, I'm not going I'm looking for four and up. Yeah? That's how I roll. I mean, I've roughed it enough in my life. So, we all look, we, we all go to TripAdvisor because somebody's been there. Somebody's taken real photos, not just the brochure. Someone's taken real photos of the shower and, you know, and... <laughs> And of the actual view that you get out your balcony. Do you know what I mean? And so that's what we do. But what do you do when nobody has been there? And we're all kind of making it up as we go along. Well, this is what the Israelites were experiencing. You see, they had never been to the promised land. And they knew the wilderness. They knew it. They were familiar with the wilderness. But this was now a whole new kettle of fish. They were like tourists, everybody. What do you do when you're going somewhere that you've never been before and nobody has? This is what the Bible says. After three days, the officers went through the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go since you have never been this way before. You have never been this way before. This is what it says. Look for the ark of the covenant. We know that the Ark of the Covenant was the presence of God. We know that that's where God resided. That's where God, God used to talk to Moses in the tent, where the Ark of the Covenant was. And so now the Ark of the Covenant is now in front of the people. And so what it's saying is, it's saying you need to look for where the covenant, where the presence of God is. You need to look for where Jesus is, the presence of God, where He is. And you need to look where He is. And when it moves, then you are to follow it. Wow. I don't know about you, but that is really, really low on detail. Don't you think? I mean, they're on the banks of a river. Where is the detail? That's what I want to know. But no, it's like God says, you don't need to worry about that. No, you just need to look for where I am. And wherever I go, that's where you go. You just follow me. Sounds similar. Sounds simple. But I want you to understand that this was a whole new deal for the Israelites. Because previously in the wilderness... They didn't have to look for the presence. They knew it was in a tent and they didn't have to look or listen. Moses did that. Moses was the one who talked to God face to face as a a friend talks to a friend. All they had to do was listen to Moses. Moses, what is God saying? Moses, what does God want us to do? Moses, we need, Moses, we need this. Moses, we need that. Talk to God for us, Moses. But now this seems to be completely different because the Bible's saying to all of the people, you look for where Jesus is. You look for where the presence of God is. So I want to ask you, church, where are you? I want to know if you can see where he is, if you can hear what he's saying. A little bit further on, Joshua says to the people, all these people, come here and listen. Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. So not only do we have to be able to see where he is, we have to be in a position. We have to position our lives in a way that we can hear him. Can you see him? Can you hear him? You see, the key to this monumental moment is what Joshua says to the people after this. He says this, Consecrate yourselves. Because today, or tomorrow rather, Consecrate yourselves today because tomorrow the Lord is going to do amazing things among you. Consecrate yourselves. What a weird word, consecrate. You know, because we don't use it in everyday speech. My son doesn't come down the stairs and go, Mom, I'm hungry, when's dinner? And I go, did you consecrate yourself? You know, or yes, you can watch TV just after you consecrate yourself. It's not something that we use in everyday speech, but what it means is it means to anoint, it means to set apart, it means to um, bless, and it means to come into single focus and devotion. Now, in my understanding, I always thought that consecration was something that God did. But I want you to see in this passage is that actually Joshua says, you do it. Consecrate yourself. Set yourself apart for the Lord. Bring yourself and your life, your heart, your mind into single focus. The only thing that you should be focused on right now is where is the Lord? And what is he saying? You know, there's a real part, there's a really uh, obvious but difficult part of consecration. Because our whole nation, our people, if you like, is on the banks of the Jordan River about to step into the promise the promise that has been passed down for generations and generations. We're about to do it. This is the moment. And yet, you might think that this is obvious, but what they had to do as part of their consecration, as part of their single focus and wholehearted devotion on the Lord, was they had to leave what they knew behind. That's hard. That's hard because, you see, they've been doing it for 40 years. You see, I know what life looks like in the wilderness. I know because I know, I know where my tent is, is positioned. I know the guys who are on my right and I know the, the family that's on the left. And, and I know my routine in the wilderness. You know, the wilderness has been awesome. You see, because we were slaves. And then God brought us into the wilderness And it was unbelievable. God parts the Red Sea. We cross on dry land. I mean, after 400 years of slavery, God turns up and He is delivering us. Not only that, but we're in the wilderness and all we have to do is we have to cry out. Cry out, we're thirsty. And the man of God with his little stick hits the rock and water comes out of a rock and is enough to, to quench the thirst of this entire people. I mean, it's spectacular, the wilderness. Absolutely spectacular. Not only that, but every single time we wake up in the morning, there is enough food on the ground for the day. It's unbelievable. I mean, this God is spectacular. This is like fireworks This is like, woo! did you see that? And when we got a craving for meat and when we had a craving to go back to what we came from, to go back into slavery because at least we ate meat, then this God blew a whole flock of quail and landed at our feet, dead. I mean, talk about delivery. We didn't have to go and hunt it. We didn't have to go and find it. Or kill it. Just there. (laughs) I mean, the wilderness is spectacular. But in order to go where God wants us to go, in order to possess the territory that God has for our nation, both corporately as a church and individually as people, We're going to have to leave that behind. What do you mean, leave that behind? That was awesome. And sometimes we can get into a place where we actually, it's hard to leave what you know. It's hard to leave what you think God is like and how he works in your life. Maybe you've got an awesome testimony or an awesome story of how God just miraculously, you know, healed you or he miraculously provided and it just kind of, whew, there it was. And God just did an amazing thing that was just so amazing. And you're like, oh, I know how God works. That's how he works. But we don't know what's going to happen in the promised land. We don't know how we're going to get our water in the promised land. But we know it's not going to be the same because Moses is not around. Now we've got to do it. Now we've got to look. Now we've got to listen and now we've got to follow the presence of God. So let me think about some things that, that, that we can get attached to. Number one, our comfort zone. The wilderness represents everything that we're familiar with and it's our comfort zone. You see, I know who I am in the wilderness and I know who you are in the wilderness. All the things that people say, oh, that's just so you. But I don't know who you are in the promised land. I know how you do life in the wilderness. I know how it works. You see, I know what church looks like in the wilderness. I know what our praise looks like. I know what our worship looks like. I know what our liturgy looks like. And you might think, you know what, I know all of this, but I don't know what church looks like in the promised land. You see, because we have never been this way before. I know what your personality is like in the wilderness, but I don't know what it's like in the promised land. I know what your ability is in the wilderness, but I don't know what it's like in the promised land. I, don't, I know what your business looks like. I know what your family looks like in the wilderness, but I don't know what it looks like in the promised land. The only thing that's going to take us through is to look, to listen, and to move. But you're going to have to break the power of nostalgia. Do you know something really bad happened in that place where they camped? You know the one with the unfortunate name? It was the last camp before they crossed over. And something really bad happened to the people of God. You see, the Midianite women had seduced some of the Hebrew men into worshiping their god, the Baal de Peor. And this Baal de Peor is a fertility god. And in order to worship the Baal de Peor, they had to have sex um, with the he- They yeah, they had sex with the Hebrew men. And as As always, when there was sin in the camp, a plague broke out and was killing thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And as you can imagine, the people started to cry out. Cry out to Moses. Cry out and say, please make it stop. And so God speaks to Moses and he says to Moses, this is what we're going to do. What I need you to do is I need you not to kill the men who were seduced by the Midianite woman. No, I need you to kill their leaders. Any leaders in the house? No hands? Wow. What's God saying? This is a problem of leadership. Anyway, moving on. So they kill all the leaders and the plague stops. But then God says something really interesting to Moses. He says, and I'm this is Numbers 25, and I'm taking it from the message translation. It says in verse 16, God spoke to Moses and he says, From here, make the Midianites your enemies and fight them tooth and nail. They turned out to be your enemies when they were seduced in the business of I'm going to leave it there. This is what I want you to hear from what God says after this, this horrible situation. He says to Moses, I need you to make the Midianites your enemy because they seduced you in the business of worshipping their God. Now, this suggests to me, and I need you to follow me, that the Midianites were not their enemies beforehand, that the Midianites were actually their friends. And it was only at this point, after this sin, after they had seduced the God's people away from Him, that they now became enemies. So don't forget that Moses' father-in-law was a priest of Midian. So there were close ties to the Midianites. The Midianites would come and they would hang out with the Hebrew people. They would eat together. They would live together. They they had friendship. They had relationship. But now the Bible says that God says, fight them tooth and nail. Don't say, I'm sorry, this is not going to work out. I'm sorry, it's not you, it's me. No, no. It's almost like get a ruthlessness in your spirit because anything that seduces you away from God, anything that seduces you away from God's people and what God promises to his people, that is now your enemy. It's not just somebody who you need to just, you know, avoid. No, an enemy. You do not befriend your enemy. You don't play with your enemy. You don't try and reason with your enemy. You don't try and bring your enemy with you. You fight them tooth and nail. And so I'm I'm believing that right now the Holy Spirit is bringing things to your mind. Things that used to be good, that you thought this is good. But now you know that they're actually taking you away from where God is taking you. From his heart, from his word, from his plan. You know, and I, so for some of you, this is the way you're going to um, know. It's, it's kind of like a litmus test. But there are some people who will have this experience that when they're with certain people or certain friends, they change. You dilute yourself. You tone yourself down. And you know that that's not who you are. That you know that that's not who God called you to be. That God is calling you forward, but you are adjusting yourself to your friends. Or even to your family. For some, it could be habits, a way of thinking. You could say, you know what, this is just the way I am. Or this is just the way I operate. Or this is just the way I deal with pressure. Or this is the way I deal with conflict. Or this is just just who I am. It's anything that takes you away from who God has called you to be. And I want you to know something. That this nation that you are a part of it, part of, this is the church. This is the local church. Right here is your nation. If this is your spiritual home, this is your nation. But I have to ask the question: where are you? Because just being part of a church that is moving forward into their promised land doesn't mean that you are. Just like hanging around famous people doesn't make you famous, just makes you a groupie. No. Every single person is needed. Every single person needs to take responsibility. Every single person needs to ask themselves, where am I? Can I see Him? Can I hear Him? And I'm moving forward. Oh, so much to say. You see, we love a buffet. We love a smorgasbord. We love, we love going to those dinners where there's multiple you know, sh- dishes on a table and we like to have something of everything on the one plate. And I've seen you. I've seen you at buffets. It's, at least like, a, it's like a science, especially the men. I'm like, you will eat again. You know that, right? <laughs> but, you know, heap it up. And sometimes we can treat our lives like that. There are so many things that are clamouring for your heart. Which means they're clamouring for your finance. But this is your nation. Your nation's on the banks of the Jordan River is about to step into the promised land. Where are you? Oh, you might think, well, this charity is great or this, this great, or this ministry is great and we, oh, I love what these guys are doing. But where are you? Where are you supposed to be? That's good for them. That's their plan. That's their purpose. That's their mandate from God. But your nation has a mandate and we need every single person to consecrate themselves, to give themselves single focus. I'm here with my brothers and sisters. I'm here to take my place. I'm here to step into everything that God has placed on my nation, on my church. Breathe Conference is territory. We need everybody, every single woman, to say, This is my nation, this is my place, and I take responsibility. Your tithe, your offering belongs here because this is your nation. And God has called us together to move as one nation into our territory. If you think this is it, you are sadly mistaken. This ain't it. We can't stay here. Turn to the person next to you and say, I can't stay here. No. Church, we can't stay here because we weren't born for the wilderness. God designed us for the promised land. And we've got more to do. We've got territory, but it's going to look different to your wilderness. It's going to be different to what you know. You're going to be different. Your day is going to be different. Your thinking is going to be different. Your choices are going to be different. Your behaviour is going to be different. Your faith will be different. Your priorities will be different. But I want you to understand that you've got to bring yourself to the simplicity. Where is He? Lord, what are you you doing? What What are you saying? Where are you going? Because all I have to do is I need to look Listen and move. You might have realised that there's a big elephant in the room and that is the Jordan River that happens to be in flood. Oh, do you think the enemy was going to let you take possession of the promised land? That easy? No. The Jordan represents every voice of intimidation that makes you feel that you can't. It makes you feel like you need to stay where you are and stick with what you know. It's the voice in your head that says, you're not ready. It's the voice in your head that says, are you kidding? Look at you, your life's a mess. You can't take ground. God can't use you. Look at your marriage. Look at your kids. It's the voice of disqualification that says you are insane to move forward. And it's convincing, church. It's loud, it's in flood, and it's convincing. But what does God say? God says, take me in. Take me into the river. Take my presence. Take my, your praise. Take my name. And you stand in the waters of your intimidation. You stand in it. You call the enemy's bluff and you say, bring it. You stand in your intimidation and you lift up the Name of Jesus because my Bible says that He has a Name that is above every name. That at the Name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that He is the Lord, that He is supreme, that He is above all things. My Bible tells me that all things have been placed under His feet. My Bible says that He makes a way where there is no way. My Bible says that He is greater. And all I have to do is take Him, take His name, take the praise of His name into the river of my intimidation. Because it is loud, but I can be louder. My praise can be louder. And I wanna tell you, church, that praise isn't pretty. Praise isn't cool. Praise is, it's, it's all of our body, all of our soul, all of our mind. When, when David was bringing home the, the Ark of the Covenant, the Bible says that he danced with all of his might. He was so excited, he was so thrilled. His praise looked ridiculous, and his wife told him, You look like a fool. You've made yourself a spectacle in front of all your people. And what did David say? He didn't care. He said, I will become even more undignified than this because I've got a praise. You don't understand, but your praise is warfare. Your praise is warfare when you lift it up and you shout it above your circumstances. You shout it above your obstacles. You shout it above your, your challenges and everything that says, stay where you are.